Are we a candidate for an incorruptible crown tonight? Are you? See, I can't answer that for you. You have to answer that. Have you laid aside every weight and the sin which also easily beset you to run with, race, run with patience the race that's set before you? Are you controlling the flesh? Paul the Apostle said he had made himself servant of all that he might gain the more. Many today want to be a chief and not an Indian. Paul says, I want to become a servant of everybody. And if you're really in leadership, you are everybody's servant. See, some people think, if I get in leadership, I can tell everybody what to do. No, when you get in leadership, you serve everybody else. That's what leadership is all about. I mean, do you know that it'd be a lot easier for my officers and their wives to be able to just go out and buy a brand new motorhome and sit in it and rejoice every weekend than to have to come and put up with the aches and pains and the belly grouches of everybody's got problems? Yeah, I, it'd, be, it'd be much easier. But you know what? They're submitted to the purpose and calling of God for their lives. And they, when you come into leadership, you got that's where it's at. That's where the flack comes. And you do it out of love for those that God has put under your care and yield to them. I'm going to quit there. Got a lot more to tell you. I hope there's nothing else. I'm just putting a little bit of an appetite in your heart to say, Lord, I want an incorruptible crown. And if anybody's going to get one, I'm going to get one. If anybody's going to run that race, I'm going to run that race. If anybody's going to win, bless God, I'll win. If it takes eating less or changing my schedule and changing my attitude, whatever, that's, whatever it takes, Lord, that's what I'm going to do because I am going to run the race to win. You say, I can't even run. Physically, I can't even run. You can run in the spirit. You can run in the spirit. You can be a spiritual. I remember years ago, a man came to my father-in-law who was in a wheelchair, couldn't talk. His hands were like this and his legs were all gnarled under him. He couldn't walk. He couldn't talk. He was a quadriplegic. And he rolled, had them roll the wheelchair down to him. And he said, Can God use me like this? Reverend Kerr said, I had to swallow real hard, but I said, Son, God can use anybody that gives all that he has to him without reservation. This man had a brilliant mind, but his body just wouldn't function. He said, You give everything you've got to God and see if God won't use you. He went out of there. He told later, he said, you know, I went down there with the intention if I didn't get an answer from God, I was going to kill myself. That man went back out and went away to the, his folks, got an opening for a scholarship for him to go to university. He could not take a note in class, but his mind was so sharp, and they had a special way of him taking tests afterwards. He graduated from the university with his doctorate with the highest degree, I mean, 4.0 average all the way through he was teaching at the St. Paul Bible College when I, right after I was I left there and he came in when my brother-in-law was there. And they said you could hardly understand what he said, but he was so brilliant, he could just rattle off all these thoughts to them. And uh, he said, well, one thing about it, I'm always on my toes. When they hold him up, he had to stand on his toes. He had a good sense of humor. But he influenced so many students for Jesus Christ and his wife that married him was a precious Christian. She used to pick him up. He's a little fellow. Picked him up, carry him all the way upstairs. She was a nurse. Carried him all the way upstairs at night. Gave him a bath. Took care of him. Had to put a, I guess, put a diaper on him. I don't know. And had to take care of him. He couldn't go to the bathroom by himself. He couldn't brush his. He couldn't do anything. She took care of him, and he ministered like that. And when the students got a grade, they used to laugh about it because he would take a piece of paper and drop it into the to the uh, typewriter. And he could take his hand like this and make the wheel go so that the paper would go down there and he'd go hit the, hit the, uh, 
grade, you didn't know where it was on the page. It could be, I mean, he says, you look at the bottom of the page, side of the page. And sometimes you write in the middle of the page, in the middle of the writing, it'd be an A or a B or whatever it was. They had to look at it and say, well, search, search and you'll find, and you'll find your grade. But they loved this man. Then I simply say this to you tonight to realize it doesn't make any difference what your limitations might be. If you give yourself totally to Jesus Christ, you'll still get an incorruptible crown. He'll take whatever you offer to him and he'll bring. He took just some, some loaves and fishes and fed 5,000. What can he do with you? He's just saying, I'm looking for someone who will say every bit of it, Lord. I want an incorruptible crown at any cost. But we have to pay the price. He says, you have to run. You have to be willing to run. You have to get prepared to run. You have to be disciplined to run. Everything else has to be set in priorities. And that's why the Bible says, what's your priority? Seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. Both go together. And all the other things will be added unto you. When? In God's good time. Well, I want it now. Then you won't get an incorruptible crown. You get it in God's time. Well, yeah, but I've been waiting a long time. There's no time with God. He's never in a hurry. He's never you know, Abraham never got, his, got what he's promised that whole nation, did he? Abraham never got it, but he died. He looked for a city whose builder and maker was God. He died in faith, and I want to tell you something. He's going to have it. Without faith, it's impossible to please God. We just have to say, Lord, above everything else, I believe you're God, and you do not change. And you said, if I'll draw nigh to you, you'll draw nigh to me. You said, if I hunger and thirst after righteousness, I'll be filled. I want to run that race. I want to be a winner. For Jesus Christ. I want an incorruptible crown. I don't care what age you are. If you'll give yourself totally to Christ. He'll use you for his honor and glory. In the days of, He'll move mountains for you. If you'll believe him for it. Get everything in order. Get all these things in line. If he says, if he says jump you ask him how high on the way up. I like what one guy says. My attitude is yes God. What was the question? What, did you, what do you want me to do? Yes, yes, yes. What do you want me to do? Wouldn't it be wonderful? Parents, you'd have a heart attack if your children were like, sure, Dad, Mom, what was it? What do you want me to do? Just, just name it. I'll just... God says, that's the kind of children I'm looking for. And I can tell there's some people God has his hand on, especially where they say, well, they're God's favorite. No, 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 no. No, God says, anybody that will come close to me, I'll come close to them. The only problem, problem is, anybody that's, you know what a fanatic is? Someone who loves Jesus more than you do. That's a fanatic. Wouldn't it be wonderful if we had a whole church full of fanatics? Everybody said, that's a bunch of fanatics. over there. That'd be the best, most wonderful thing I could ever have said about my church. Just a bunch of religious fanatics. Yeah, they love Jesus more than they do. For an incorruptible crown, it's worth it. I want to tell you something. We've all gone through some valleys in our lifetime. We've all gone through some difficult things, but we can say God's way is perfect. He never makes a mistake. He's promised never to leave and never forsake. It doesn't make any difference what I've got to go through. Jesus, for the joy that was set before him, endured the cross, despising the shame. What? <laughs> it didn't make any difference what the world did to him. He knew what he had coming. Can we have that attitude? Father, in Jesus' name, give us that winning attitude. In Jesus' name, make us mark down, I will have an incorruptible crown. By the grace of God, I'll be all that God wants me to be. I'm going to set my priorities, and I will be what God wants me to be. If anybody's going to win, I'm going to win because I and God make a majority. Father, I just pray tonight that for any that might have doubts or fears that they can do it, I pray tonight that the word will get down in their heart that 
him that cometh unto me I will in no wise cast out. That your word says I will never leave you and I will never forsake you. Father, I pray tonight that by faith they'll reach out and say, by the grace of God, my life is going to be changed. My life is going to be transformed. I'm going to set new priorities concerning my school, concerning my work, concerning my household, concerning my family, concerning my relationship to this church. I am going to do it with the understanding that in doing so, I am earning an incorruptible crown that will never fade away. I pray, Father, that that will be the desire of our heart tonight. And none of us tonight will go out of here saying big deal. Because when we stand before you, it will be a big deal. And I pray that we'll recognize that and never forget it. Lord, I'm just asking you to do this thing in our hearts and lives tonight that no one will go away feeling as though there's not a possibility for them. Because you're no respecter of persons. You're no respecter of persons. You're looking for the Joshua and Caleb that have a different spirit. And I pray tonight that we'll have Joshua and Caleb's in this church many of them tonight that when the crowd gives its report they'll be able to stand up and say if God before us who can be against us if God says we can do it let's go in they're going to be grasshoppers before us we're not grasshoppers pray that we'll not have a grasshopper spirit tonight but instead we'll be able to say let's go do what God told us we can do because he'll be with us and believe you for it how many nights would you say pastor pray with me tonight I I really want to have an incorruptible crown. And I, I, I'm making a quality decision, whatever it costs. By the grace of God, it's going, to be, it's going to be a reality in my life in the days ahead when I meet the Lord. I'm going to guide my life and set my priorities accordingly so that when that day comes, I'll be able to hear him say, well done, good and faithful servant. Anyone else tonight say, yes, I want, yes, God bless you. Praise God. Praise God. It's just wonderful to see all these hands. Yes. All right, I want you to make this confession right now. Heavenly Father, you don't have to do it out loud, but Heavenly Father... In the name of Jesus, I desire an incorruptible crown. And whatever the cost is, by an act of my will, I choose for you to have the Holy Spirit bring me to that place of obedience. Whatever the cost. Lord, do it and send me the bill. I want to be your servant. I don't want to lose sight of eternity and an incorruptible crown. I want a crown that doesn't fade away. I don't want a crown that gets old the minute I have it. And in Jesus' name, I want to be everything that you would have me to be so that I can do what you would have me to do. I give all my limitations to you, all my restrictions to you. I renounce all the doubt and unbelief, all the rebellion, all the stubbornness, I renounce it and separate myself from it. I repent of it. All the selfishness in Jesus' name. All the self-centeredness. And I say with John the Baptist, he must increase, but I must decrease. Father, as they've prayed that prayer tonight, in Jesus' name, I ask that you will infuse them with a new sense of your Spirit's presence, your Spirit's power in their lives where they'll never be the same again. In Jesus' name, I pray that this will be a red-letter night for every one of them. That they'll not go out of here and forget the decision that they made tonight. That they'll write it down in their Bibles that this night I have determined that my lifestyle will be disciplined by the Word of God and that I'll not do what other people think is right. I'll do what the Word says and be disciplined about it.
by the help of the Spirit of God. Father, I just pray that every one of them will know that something new has happened in their lives from this night forward. I just ask that you would honor them, Lord, because you said if they draw nigh to you, you'll draw nigh to them. If they hunger and thirst after righteousness, that's what they're saying. Lord, I'm hungry to be righteous. I pray, Father, that you'll fill them with your Spirit and that they'll have a new boldness to witness, a new boldness to stand up against opposition, against the peer pressure. They'll not compromise. Father, I just pray that they'll just begin to know the joy of the Lord like they've never known it before. In Jesus' precious name we ask it. And we thank you for it. Amen. How many of you praise God for the decisions that were made tonight? A lot of decisions made here tonight. Amen. When the believer's books are audited, there are several judgments spoken of in the Scripture, but the one we're talking about this morning is not for unbelievers, but for believers, and it's called the judgment seat of Christ. We've been talking about this now for several weeks. In Hebrews 9, 27... It says, and it's appointed unto men once to die, but after this the judgment. And let me say again, I, I've lived for 60, over 60 years now, and I have found out that very few people really believe they're going to die. There's something about their psyche that just tells them, no, somebody else is going to die, but I'm not going to die. And the scripture says it's appointed unto every one of us to die. Now, that's not a very happy thought for some people, but the Apostle Paul said it's a glorious thought to him. Absent from the body to be present with the Lord. We must not look upon death as, as something gruesome. It's, it's actually a passing where in the, in the one pulsation of an atom we're taken out of this present life and into the presence of the Lord if we're believers. Absence from the body is to be present with the Lord. So it's an exciting thing. But in 2 Corinthians, the fifth chapter, Paul the Apostle talks about this judgment. 2 Corinthians, the fifth chapter, <clears throat> verses 10 and 11. Let me, uh, let me go uh, to verse 8 first, or verse 7, I'm sorry. For, by, for we walk by faith, not by sight. First Corinthians, or 2 Corinthians 5, 7. First, 2 Corinthians 5, 7. For we walk by faith, not by sight. We are confident, I say, and willing rather to be absent from the body and to be present with the Lord. We are willing rather to be absent from the body and present with the Lord. We would, if we had our druthers, we'd be absent from the body and present with the Lord. He's saying that's better than where we are right now. Wherefore we labor that whether present or absent, we may be accepted of him. He says we're not only here right now, but we're here laboring because we want to be accepted in his presence at that time. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that everyone may receive the things done in his body according to that he hath done, whether it be good or or bad, knowing therefore the terror of the Lord, we persuade men, but we are made manifest unto God, and I trust also are made manifest in your consciences. He said there's a judgment seat of Christ that's coming. <clears throat> we said last week that there are three judgments uh, uh, toward man. First one was already the past judgment, was when we were judged sinners, for all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. None righteous, no, not one. All we like sheep have gone astray. That judgment is pure and, and, and is clear. There's not one person on the face of the earth that's righteous. I said the second judgment is the present judgment where we're being judged now as sons. Look in 1 John with me. 1 John chapter 3. 1 John 3. 1 through 3. 
for being judged today as sons, behold what manner of love the Father hath bestowed upon us that we should be called the sons of God. Therefore the world knoweth us not because it knew him not. Beloved, now are we the sons of God, and it doth not yet appear what we shall be, but we know that when he shall appear, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. And every man that hath this hope in him purifieth himself, even as he is pure. We are now being judged as sons of God. If you, if you then be risen with Christ, seek those things which are above. Seek ye first the kingdom of God. All these things are placed upon us now for a present judgment as sons. But then the future one is we're going to be judged as servants. And the Word of God talks about the rewards that will come to us as servants. And the first one we were talking about is the incorruptible crown, which is found in 1 Corinthians, the ninth chapter. 1 Corinthians chapter 9, beginning with verse 24. 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 24. 1 Corinthians 9, verse 24. Know ye not, and by the way, again, let me say, this is only for Christians, citizens of heaven, only for those who have repented of their sins and trusted Christ. These verses are for them. Know ye not that they which run in a race run all, but one receiveth the prize. So run that ye may obtain. And every man that striveth for the mastery is temperate in all things. Now they do it to obtain a corruptible crown, but we an incorruptible. I therefore so run, not as uncertainly, so fight I, not as one that beateth the air, but I keep under my body and bring it into subjection, lest that by any means, when I have preached to others, I myself should be a castaway. Paul said it's one thing to talk about it, but it's another thing to do it. And he said he disciplined himself, and we talked all about that. But the important thing is, the first thing we talked about last week was if you and I are going to get an incorruptible crown, we have to curtail our activities. And that is to do what the Lord, what the Word of God says we're to do and not what we want to do. And the Bible says very clearly in the last days that men are going to be lovers of pleasures, lovers of pleasures more than God. <clears throat> They're going to want to do their own thing. They're going to be selfish, self-centered, high-minded. And uh, it, when it says we're to be temperate in all things and to deny ourselves and to obey His commands, it means that if He says pray, praying always we're to pray. If it says that we're not to forsake the assembling of ourselves together as the manner of some is, we're not to forsake the assembling of ourselves together as the manner of some is. All the more as you see that day approaching. If it says that we're to memorize Scripture, it means we're to hide the Word of God away in our heart because it becomes a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path. If it says love your wife or obey your husband or whatever it says in the Word of God, if that's what He commands, that's what we're supposed to do. We curtail what we want to do and do what the Word of God tells us we ought to do. If the Word of God says we're to tithe, if the Word of God says we're to be baptized, if the Word of God says that we're to join a church, if we're to quit bad habits, whatever it is, it doesn't make any difference what we want to do. When we come to Jesus Christ, we say, He is Lord, and whosoever He be of you that's not willing to forsake all that you have, you cannot be His disciple. That's the first thing we talked about last week. Now, to the second aspect of it, the first one was <clears throat> that we're to curtail our activities. And the second thing was we're to control the flesh. Before you and I were saved, we were subject only to the impulse of the flesh. If it felt good, do it. The five senses, seeing, hearing, feeling, tasting, and smelling. And we had no other input. But you have he quickened who were dead in trespasses and sins whereby we only responded to the flesh, now we're made alive spiritually and the Spirit of God begins to impart truth to us 
and we have a new source of income for, of information for our spirit, for our soul. Now, the soul is the intellect, sensibility, and will, that thing that makes us be what we are, our personality and so forth, dwelling in a house. And that's what was amazing to me when I became a Christian. Before that time, I mean, man, I just was out there doing anything I could possibly do. And all of a sudden, the Spirit of God says, don't do that. Now, where did that come from, you know? I mean, I always have done that. I mean, that's always, I always felt when I felt that way, that's what I did. Don't do that. And I had a whole new input of information to my heart. Now, that's why the Bible says the flesh lusts against the Spirit, and the Spirit against the flesh. The two are contrary, the one to the other. We want to do what we want to do, and the Spirit of God wants to do what He wants us to do. And whichever one we feed, that's the one that's going to win. But when we're talking here about the fact that we need to control the flesh, Paul the Apostle said in 1 Corinthians 9, 19, because he was trying to witness to others, because he wanted to win others to Jesus Christ, he didn't do what he wanted to do. He became, first of all, the servant of Jesus Christ. But in 1 Corinthians 9, 19, he says not that he was also, for though I be free from all men, yet have I made myself servant unto all that I may gain the more. He said, I have been willing not only to become a servant of Jesus Christ, but a servant of those that are around me. What does it mean to be a servant of those that are around you? Jesus said in the New Testament, if anyone's going to be a leader, they must be a servant of all. We have to come to a place where we don't live for ourselves or what we want or what we desire to do. We live for those around us. You know, Mom and Dad, you know exactly what we're talking about here because there's some things that maybe you would do that you wouldn't do because your children are around. There are things that you, places you might go, but you wouldn't do it because in doing so, you might influence your children. There's things that you might practice that you wouldn't practice because your children are around. You don't want to have an influence on them. And you say to Grandma and Grandpa, don't do that when our kids are around. We don't want you to have that kind of an influence on them. Well, Paul the Apostle says, because we are debtor to all men because of the knowledge of the gospel that we have, we have to become a servant to all. And by the way, may I just interject this again? Parents, when you're here on Sunday morning, you're being a witness and a testimony to your children. When you're not here on Sunday night or Wednesday night, you're being a witness and a testimony to your children. And whatever you do in moderation, they'll do it to excess. You can write it down in the back sheet of your Bible and remember that on this date in 1994, Pastor Webb told you that in the days ahead, if you're a Sunday morning attender at church and you, you, you just decide that Sunday night and Wednesday night is not for you, your children in the days ahead will be an occasional Sunday morning attender. Or not at all. Why? Because you are setting a pattern, a principle for them of what is a priority in life. Now, I don't like to jump up and down on this, but I am so concerned about it because uh, whatever we're exposed to the most, that's what's going to take. And our families need all the exposure they can get to the Word of God. And some people say, well, my children don't want to come. Well, how many of your children really want to go to school? Hello. My children don't want to go to school. I'm not going to make them go to school for petty things. They don't want to. They don't enjoy school. Come on, give me a break. Of course they don't want it. They don't even want to eat vegetables. How many of you make them eat? No, I shouldn't ask that. Because I've seen a lot of parents don't make their kids eat vegetables either. But uh, it's very, very important for you to understand it isn't what they want. It's what you know is important. And emphasize that the importance of this to them for their children's sake. They're not just going to church for their, their own sake. They're getting a knowledge down into their heart that's going to help them to have an influence on their children and their children's children. You see, when you're done with your children, you're not done because when their children come along, you're going to have an impact on their children. And so when their parents, they're not done with their children, either. they're going to have an impact on their grandchildren. What kind of an impact are they going to have? They'll only have the impact of whatever's in their heart. 
And if they don't get the word of God down in their heart, they'll not grow. Please real understand that. Look at 1 Corinthians, the 8th chapter, where Paul talks about eating meat. Now, I, <clears throat> some years ago I taught on this, and I think it's so important. This is the difference between all things in moderation, as some uh, denominations teach, and the other, uh, the fact that uh, I will do nothing that will offend a weaker brother. And I believe the holiness movement talks more about doing nothing that would offend a weaker brother more than to do all things in moderation. You see, if we do all things in moderation, that means we won't drink too much. It means we won't smoke too much. It means we won't cuss too much. It means we won't steal too much. You see, that's not the principle by which we operate. And I've had a lot of people say to me, well, I don't drink very much. They drink in front of their children, but then their children come along and their children drink too much because of weakness in their life. Now, that's the thing that Paul is talking about in Corinthians, 1 Corinthians, the 8th chapter, beginning with the 4th verse. As concerning, therefore, the eating of those things that are offered in sacrifice to idols, we know that an idol is nothing in the world and that there is none other God but one. He said, now, don't, don't misunderstand me. I'm not saying there's anything in those idols. That's a chunk of wood or a chunk of concrete or a chunk of stone that's been polished out. There's nothing there. In reality, it's really, they're, they're worshiping demons. They're not worshiping that idol. Verse 5, For though there be that are called gods, whether in heaven and in earth, or in earth, and there be gods many and lords many, and all the small letters you notice he writes that. But to us there is but one God, the Father, of whom are all things, and we in him, and one Lord, Jesus Christ, by whom are all, all, thing, are all things, and we by him. Howbeit, there is not in every man that knowledge. Everybody doesn't understand that. Everybody doesn't have that same understanding. For some, with conscience of the idol unto this hour, eat it as a thing offered unto an idol, and their conscience is weak and defiled. When they eat it, they realize they're eating it unto this idol, and they still look at that as a god. They still look at it as a lord, as a ruler. But meat commended... Now, by the way, the meat they were talking about here, in that day, you can imagine, they had no refrigeration, and when they would kill these animals, they took only the, the finest of animals to offer as sacrifices, so they had the finest meat around. How many of you know there's a difference between prime and choice meat and, and commercial grade? Commercial grade is the kind you chew when you want to get your teeth cleaned and your gums strengthened. It's kind of, it's there like, it, it, it lasts longer than bubble gum. But uh, your, your prime and your choice, that's the kind of animals they had when they offered sacrifice. They had to get rid of that meat as quickly as possible. Paul says there's nothing wrong with that meat. They were offered to a sacrifice, and the meat is still delicious. And you can you buy your commercial grade downtown; they charge you three bucks a pound. You go down there and pick that stuff up for a quarter a pound. You give the difference to missions. That's what some people's thinking evidently was. And he said there's nothing wrong with that. But he said if there are some people who still who came out of that kind of a uh, of idol worshiping, and they see you do it, and they go back and do it, they may get snared in that thing again. Now there's nothing wrong with the meat. There's nothing, I mean, they, those idols are nothing whatsoever. You know that, I know that, there's no problem. But some people don't know that. But the meat commendeth us not to God, for neither if we eat are we the better, neither if we eat not are we the worse. Now, may I say that for vegetarians? May I, may I ask them to memorize that verse? Some people that are vegetarians that say we shouldn't eat meat, says, Paul said, if we eat it, we're none the worse. If we don't eat it, we're none the better. I mean, vice versa. If we eat it, uh, we're, we are... Uh, for neither if we eat are we the better, neither if we eat not are we the worse. But take heed, lest by any means, and this is the key verse, if by any means this liberty of yours become a stumbling block to them that are weak. For if any man see uh, thee that which 
hath knowledge that meat in the idol's temple, shall not the conscience of him that is weak be emboldened to eat those things which are offered to idols? And through my knowledge shall the weak brother perish for whom Christ died? But when ye sin so against the brethren and wound their weak consciences, ye sin against Christ. Wherefore, if meat make my brother to offend, I will eat no flesh while the world standeth, lest I make my brother to offend. <clears throat> In chapter 9, verse 27, Paul says, If I, I keep my body under and bring it unto, into subjection. Why? For love's sake. He said, I have chosen to be a servant of all. It doesn't make a difference whether I eat prime meat. It doesn't make a difference whether I can drink the fine wines and so forth. He said, that's not the end. The answer, the question is, does it cause a weaker brother to stumble? And again, I'll use the same illustration I've used before. Some of our charismatic brethren went over to Israel years ago and were dining in the dining room there, all drinking wine, feeling that they had the liberty to do so. And another Christian man came down and came over by the table. and They said, hey, sit down with us. Have a glass of wine. No, I really shouldn't. No, come on. Don't be in bondage. Now have one. And the man took that first glass of wine. He went off the wagon. He had been an alcoholic. And there bold, strong conscience caused him to stumble and fall and go away from Christ. Now, this is what Paul's talking about. He said, if we're going to receive the, the incorruptible crown, we've got to control the flesh. Not what we want to do, but for love's sake, what is best? Romans, the fifth chapter, verses 1 and 2. Romans chapter, I'm sorry, Romans 15. Romans 15, 1 and 2. Paul again talks about this to the church of Rome. It evidently was a very important factor in that day. A lot of Christians were doing things they ought not to be doing and causing other Christians to stumble. 1 Corinthians, the 15th chapter, says, We then that are strong ought to bear the infirmity of the weak and not to please ourselves, but let every one of us please his neighbor for his good to edification. Now let me read that to you out of the Living Bible. If, even if we believe that it makes no difference to the Lord whether we do these things, still we cannot just go ahead and do them to please ourselves. Isn't that powerful? Let me say that again. Even if we believe that it makes no difference to the Lord whether we <clears throat> do these things, still we cannot just go ahead and do them to please ourselves. For we must bear the burden of being considerate of the doubts and fears of others. Of those who feel these things are wrong, let's please the other fellow, not ourselves, and do what is good for his good, and thus build him up in the Lord. Can you imagine what a change that would make in the body of Christ if everyone took that attitude? I want to do what I want to I couldn't care less what that neighbor, I mean, if that's his, I mean, if he's going to stumble over that, that's his problem. Paul said, no, 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 don't, don't look at it that way. That's not his problem. Because if you do it and sin against your brother, in reality, you're sinning against Christ. Now, I've had some people say, well, you know, that's just going to get a person into total bondage. I mean, you carry that thing out. You know, the problem is that the minute you state that, people want to use these hypothetical things clear out to an extreme. Now, I'm not talking about extremes. He's talking about things here where our doing them sooner or later causes a weaker brother to stumble. So... He says we must curtail our activities, we must control our flesh, and thirdly, we must control our mind. I spoke a whole series one time on the renewing of the mind and told you that don't let the devil tell you that you can't control what you think about. Now, I know that there's some young people that have real problems thinking about the things of the Lord. 
They have real problems thinking about the Bible. And the reason for that is that they have trained their mind to think of those things that are worldly. They have trained their minds to listen to the wrong kind of music. They've trained their minds to listen to the wrong kind of activities. They have trained their mind. You say, I didn't train. Yes, you trained your mind because you allowed your mind to think things they ought not to think. There are some young people who have no fellowship with Christians because the Christians want to do things that they aren't interested in doing. They want to do other things that are not Christian, and they can't have fellowship. That's because we have allowed our minds to be fed the wrong things. Philippians, the fourth chapter and the eighth verse, Paul the Apostle tells us that we have the, a right and the parameters that we can put our mind into and make it think what we want it to think. Paul the Apostle in Philippians 4, 8 said, Finally, brethren, whatsoever things are true, whatsoever things are honest, whatsoever things are just, whatsoever things are pure, whatsoever things are lovely, whatsoever things are of good report, if there be any virtue and if there be any praise, think on these things. Now, if he tells us what we are to think upon, then in reality he's telling us what not to think upon. I've had people say, I can't control what my mind says. I said, I beg your pardon. Do you walk down the street and have your hand fly up and slap somebody in the face? Well, of course not. Well, why not? Well, that's my hand. It only does what I tell it to do. That's right. And it's your mind, and it only does what you tell it to do if you realize that God's given you that authority. You can't go around saying, well, those thoughts are just in my mind. Oh, no, you open the door to them. You have to come against them and rebuke them in Jesus' name and say, mind, you will not think those thoughts. Mind, you will not desire and hunger after those things over there. You will not suck on that sour stuff of the world over there anymore. You will not suck on that cesspool of the world anymore. I will not have you thinking on that. I will not have you saying the words of those filthy rock music, that filthy rock music, uh, the words to those songs anymore. I'll not have, mind, you will begin to center in on Jesus Christ. I want to tell you something. God has not given us a spirit of fear, but a power and of love and of a disciplined mind. And if you're saved, Jesus Christ has the power to give you a disciplined mind. Why? If you need it, if you're going to receive an incorruptible crown. Because as a man thinketh in his heart, so is he. And if a man goes around with lust in his heart, don't blame anyone else. You've allowed it to come in. You've got to deal with that thing. You've got to get it out. If there's pornography in your life, you brought it in. You're responsible. God's going to hold you responsible. You've got to rebuke it. You've got to get it out of your life. What did... David say, Blessed is the man that walketh not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor standeth in the way of sinners, nor sitteth in the seat of the scornful, but his delight is in the law of the Lord. And in his law doth he meditate day and night. He shall be like a tree. He'll be like a tree planted by the rivers of water, bringing forth the fruit in its season. His leaf also shall not wither, and whatsoever he doeth shall prosper. Who? The man who controls his mind. The man who tells his mind what he will think. You see, Jesus said, Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, with all thy soul, with all thy strength, with all thy might, and love thy neighbors thyself. Now, you can't do that unless you're in control of your mind. Have a disciplined mind. You say, well, how do you get... Let, let me ask you, you want a good test? Get quiet. Just get quiet somewhere and let your mind rest for a moment and see what thoughts come into your mind. Now, first of all, if you're used to listening to rock music, you won't be able to stand stay very quiet very long. 
I know. I mean, I, I you see these young people are going around with these earphones on, on the seat. Or you drive past their car and your car goes, and they can't stand quietness. Why? Because their mind has been opened up to this thing and it just literally controls them. And if it controls you, then Christ doesn't control you. As a man thinketh in his heart, so is he. If it's your mind, you have to take control again. You have to take charge again. My mind will think the things that God tells you. What? True, honest, just, pure, lovely, of good report with virtue and praise. And I keep saying, you know, we ought to stick that in about this big a verse right at the top of our TV set. How many of you know it's awfully hard to even read the newspaper and read that? True, honest, just, pure, lovely, and good report, virtue and praise. Almost impossible. Well, you remember me giving you the illustration some time ago concerning your mind? And we've been talking about if you think wrong thoughts, if you think lustful thoughts, don't blame the girl that walks by for that lust. All she did was shake your cup and show you what was in it. If there's lust in there and she shakes your cup, she just she she didn't make you lust, she just shook the lust in you and showed you that was there. You need to deal with it. Don't blame her. You deal with it. Lord, I don't want that in my life. I rebuke that in Jesus' name. I'm gonna make a covenant with my eyes and I'll not look at a woman with lust. Now, if you make that kind of a covenant, that means you're in charge, doesn't it? it means you're in control. So don't blame someone else. question is, do we really want an incorruptible crown? If we do, we're going to have to keep the rules. We're going to have to obey Christ's commands. We're going to have to be willing to pay the price, curtail our activity. We're going to have to control our flesh, and we're going to have to control our mind. And the question is, do we want to win? If we don't keep the rules, we won't win. I remember reading some time ago of an athlete by the name of Jim Thorpe. He was an Indian. He was from New Mexico. And he was in the Olympics when it was over in Stockholm, Sweden, many years ago. Some of you will remember. If you do, of course, you're much older than I. But uh, the king of Sweden said to Jim Thorpe, he said, You, sir, are the greatest amateur athlete in the world today. And some white man in the United States was really angry when he saw an Indian from the United States had won the Olympics. And so he went back and researched Jim Thorpe's background and found out that uh, when Jim Thorpe was a student in Carlisle, Pennsylvania, in uh, college, that a, a baseball team there paid him $5 a week to play on their team. And he's, ah, he's not a, an amateur anymore. He's a professional. He got paid $5 a week. And they presented that information to the, uh, uh, the uh, Olympics committee, and Jim Thorpe had to send all the honors and the medals back. And he said, I didn't know. I didn't know that I couldn't collect that $5. <clears throat> I didn't understand that. And... Uh, this man worked hard. He had done all the exercises. He had done all the training. He had kept all the other rules, but he'd broken one rule. He accepted $5 a week when he played on a baseball team. He lost everything. He didn't observe the rules and lost everything. You know, there are a lot of people today going to church, doing a lot of things in church, very religiously active, and don't realize that if you don't keep the rules, you can lose a lot. And... Uh, I'm talking about God's rules, not ours. A lot of people are keeping rules. They're keeping their own rules and their own ideas and their own convictions and their own inclinations. Uh, <clears throat> but the Scripture says, so run well that you may obtain. You have to keep the rules. And God's rules are very, very clear if we're going to receive an incorruptible crown. 
I don't know about you, but I desire an incorruptible crown. And Jesus said there's three things that he laid down in, in Luke, the 14th chapter, and I close with this. He said, first of all, <clears throat> you can't love anyone more than me. If you do, you can't be my disciple. Comparatively, you've got to hate him. If ever a choice of allegiance comes, it's already made. I'm first. Secondly, he said, if you're not willing to take up your cross daily, do God's will daily. If you're not willing to, you can't be my disciple. Thirdly, he said, if you're not willing to forsake all that you have, what does that mean? Sell everything? No. It means deny ownership of it. Yes, these things are in my hands right now, but my hands are wide open because I don't own them. God has placed them in my hands as his steward, and I'm responsible to him. And so I release them to the Lord. Whatever he wants done with them, they belong to him. My relationships, my possessions, everything are his. I like what Tori, uh, Corey Ten Boom said. She said, I always hold on to everything very loosely. That way God doesn't have to hurt my fingers when he's prying my fingers loose. When I realize it's not mine anyway. So you see, that's, if we're going to have an incorruptible crown, these are the rules we have to keep. Curtail our activities, curtail the flesh, control the mind to walk obediently before the Lord, realizing that we can become a stumbling block to other people around about us. And if we do, we're not sinning against them. We're sinning against Christ because we're to love him above everybody else. Father, I ask this morning in Jesus' name that you'll cause us to literally hunger and desire to partake or be recipients of the incorruptible crown. Father, I, I realize the Apostle Paul said it was so important that we, he warned us that we had to run with the intention of winning. And Lord, there's some here maybe this morning that couldn't care less if they're running in that race, but oh, someday they'll would to God they had run in that race. They'll would to God they had put Jesus Christ first in their lives and sought first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. I just pray this morning, Father, that they'll see the folly the folly of seeking anything else. Because someday you're going to say, Thou fool, this night shall thy soul be required of thee. Then who shall all these things be? Father, I pray that none here will live for the flesh. Jesus said, If we live for the flesh, we're going to die. But whoso loseth his life for my sake and the gospel, the same shall find it. I pray that everyone here will have a desire to find genuine life in Jesus Christ. Father, I just pray that the Spirit of God will be doing the work that needs to be done in every heart this morning. And they will be willing to say, not what I want to be, nor where I wish to go, but whatever the Lord wants, that's what I want. I pray, Father, that as we think about what our flesh wants to do, we might reckon ourselves to be dead indeed unto sin, but alive unto God. And say, I am crucified with Christ, nevertheless I live, yet not I, but Christ lives in me. I pray, Father, that we'll place ourselves on the altar again and say, Lord, I want to come back to where I was originally with you. I want you to be first and foremost in my life. Nothing else, first. Father, I pray that you'll put it in the hearts of the parents to realize that they're not just, not just going to church with their family, they are establishing principles for their family. And in the days ahead, the children will use that as the premise upon which they're going to base their standard. Father, I pray that there'll be no grieving grandparents here because they didn't establish these things in the lives of their children. How I pray you'll give us wisdom and insight to see the, the importance of these eternal things. 
Father, I pray in Jesus' name that you'll strengthen our families, cause these families to be all that you want them to be so that in the days ahead, none can point their finger at them. Lord, I know we're not perfect. We fail all the time, but we have a perfect God. And we want to be like, uh, conformed into the image of Jesus Christ every day from glory to glory. We don't understand why you ever came to die for us, Lord, but we're so grateful you did. And I pray that we'll recognize what, you, what the Lord Jesus said when he said, As the Father has sent me, so send I you. He was our servant, and we're to be servants today. I pray that we'll have a servant spirit. And that Christ will be in control of every area of our lives. I pray this in Jesus' precious and holy name. How many this morning say, Pastor, I want an incorruptible crown above everything else. Uh, today, I want an incorruptible crown before the Lord. Yes, God bless you. I want that incorruptible crown. Yes, any other. Praise the Lord. And I'm willing to pay whatever price it is, whatever the Lord wants me to be. I want to be keeping the rules. I want to control the flesh, my mind, curtail my activities, whatever it takes, but I want that crown. Anyone else? Yes, yes. Father, thank you. You see these hearts, you see these hands in Jesus' name. You said if we draw nigh to you, you'll draw nigh to us. If we hunger and thirst after righteousness, we shall be filled. Fill them with your spirit, I pray in Jesus' name. Lord, let them establish a real decision today that will change their lives. I pray, Father, that their very activities their very thought life will be changed and transformed because they'll realize that it's worth it for an eternal crown. Not just an earthly crown, an eternal crown. Let it be so, I pray in Jesus' precious and holy name. Amen. Tonight at 6 o'clock, we're going to be having the Lord's Supper and time of fellowship and preaching God's Word. We'll look forward to seeing you there. God bless you. day in which we're living, we need to understand what the Lord desires of his children. We're living in a day and age when compromise is the, the, the mode by which most people want to walk through as little difficulty as possible, and I want you to know that that isn't what the Word of God teaches. The Word of God says that we have to be good soldiers, we have to put on the whole armor of God that we're in a battle or in a struggle. And when he promises these different crowns, we talk about the the uh, first crown that it involved discipline, curtailing our appetites and so forth. If we're going to have it, we have to be willing to pay a price. We're going to be judged as servants of God. And uh, I know that there are many that want to talk about the grace and mercy of God and the love of God and the kindness of God. But as one person was saying today, when you look at God, you see it's like looking at a diamond. There are many facets to it. You'll see God's love in one aspect. You'll see God's justice in another aspect, another facet of his, of his nature. You'll see God's righteousness. You'll see the wrath of God in another one. You'll see the, the mercy and kindness of God in another facet. But they're all involved in who God really is. And if we get off balance in any one of those areas and jump up and down on one more than the other, we're not giving a true picture of who God really is. And when we talk about the judgment that's to come for Christians in the days ahead... It's awfully nice to be able to say, well, God has already provided the way and all we have to do is coast in. i got news for you. There's a lot of verses that say that's not so. That there's 
not a promise that we're going to have all prosperity and all blessing and everything's going to just go the way we want it to go. That's not what it says at all. There's times when it says we're going to go through extreme suffering and extreme trials and testings. Is this mic working right now? Can you hear it in the speakers? I can't hear it coming back to me. It's because of me, not because of you, Jesse. I thought I had that switch on. I keep digging for that switch and can't find it. Okay? Let's get a bigger switch for a bigger finger here, I think. All right. We talked before about the incorruptible crown. Tonight I want to go on to the crown of life, the second reward that the Lord promises to us. James 1.12. James 1.12. James 1.12 says, Blessed is the man that endureth temptation. And the Living Bible there says, doesn't give up when he's tempted. Blessed is the man who doesn't give up when he's tempted. For when he is tried, he shall receive the what? Crown of life, which the Lord has promised to them that love him. Then turn over to Revelation, the second chapter. Revelation chapter 2, I want to begin reading with verse 8. And unto the angel of the church in Smyrna write, These things saith the first and the last, which was dead and is alive. I know thy works, and tribulation, and poverty, but thou art rich. And I know the blasphemy of them which say they are Jews and are not, but are the synagogue of Satan. Fear none of those things which thou shalt suffer. Behold, the devil shall cast some of you into prison, that ye may be tried, and ye shall have tribulation ten days. Be thou faithful unto death, and I'll give thee a what? A crown of life. He that hath an ear to hear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches. Now I want you to understand that this is Revelation. In, John, in Revelation 2.10 is a revelation not of John. It's a revelation of Jesus Christ that was given to John on the Isle of Patmos when he was a prisoner there. And it was on the Lord's day, he said he heard a, a voice behind him, heard actually a, a, a great voice as of a trumpet, and said, what, what thou seest, write in a book and send it to the seven churches which are in Asia. <clears throat> now there's no history that we can find concerning the birth of this church of Smyrna, uh, how it was founded probably when Paul was at Ephesus. But Luke wrote himself concerning uh, uh, some of the churches said the whole of the large province of Asia had heard the gospel. It wasn't mentioned in Acts, but Luke mentioned it uh, in, uh, concerning the, the spreading of the gospel. Smyrna, the word Smyrna means faithful. Now, it's important that we understand this, and these things are so symbolic, uh, we have to understand the surroundings of history and uh, the, the story of that day in order to understand it. It was called, and it was the first city of, a of uh, Asia. It was... Uh, exalted above Smyrna, uh, or, uh, above Pergamos or Ephesus, and it was a very beautiful and a very wealthy city, the city of Smyrna, where there was a church, and uh, it had a seaport that faced the east, and it was a very magnificent city in its day, according to the historians. It had a stadium, 
and had one of the uh, uh, one of the largest libraries known in that day in the city of Smyrna, and it was the birthplace of Homer. Some of you know, of course, if you have read your literature in the past, and uh, but it had many pagan temples in the city of Smyrna. I want to give you this background so that you can understand what the Lord was saying to this church. Now, in order for the Roman Empire to become unified, they had to have something that they could make for the rallying cry. So they began to inculcate or place into the society the requirement for Caesar worship. Everybody must bow down and worship Caesar. And because there was a conglomeration of people, they had all different types of classes of people, uh, races of people, and so they wanted to have something that would unify them. So they said, we're all going to worship Caesar. And uh, uh, they called it what they called Pax Romana, which means uh, uh, that the men and the leaders would have peace. That was their theme in that day, Pax Romana, and they worshipped what they called Dia Roma, which is the spirit of Rome. And at first it was voluntary. They just said it'd be nice for everybody to do this. But later on, it became mandatory. And uh, when they uh, built the temple there in Smyrna, they built six others around the uh, Roman Empire, and uh, they started what we called emperor worship. Domitian, uh, at the end of the first century, uh, made it compulsory. You had to bow down and worship Caesar. And once a year, you had to be able to say, Caesar is Lord, and then you received a certificate saying you had said that, so you were a faithful citizen. If you did not say that and did not have that certificate, you'd be in trouble. And so consequently, because the Christians would not do that, they were outlawed. In that day, it was illegal to be a Christian because they would not say Caesar is Lord. And the disloyal citizens would lose their job they could lose all their possessions, they lost all their rights, they lost their properties, and it could even mean death. In many cases, they were killed because they would not say once a year, Caesar is Lord, to get that little certificate. And you know, in this day and age, if somebody has to compromise, they, well, a little compromise like that is not so important, but back then, they said, we won't do it. We will not say Caesar is Lord because only Jesus is Lord. Now, there was a large Jewish population in Smyrna, and they found, took, found this was the opportunity they needed in order to be able to get at these Christians. And so they would go around and spy on the Christians and find out which ones are Christians and then inform the Romans that this person is not saying that Caesar is Lord. These are unfaithful citizens. These people need to be dealt with. And consequently, many of them were destroyed. And uh, they hated the Christians and they informed on them continuously and discredited their testimonies. And that's where the martyrdom of Polycarp came in. Um, Polycarp was a follower of Paul, and he was one that started the church of Smyrna. He was the, one of the stars. In the book of Revelation, by the way, it talks about the seven stars of the churches of Asia. And uh, those who interpret that say that those are the pastors. Now, I'll tell you something. Nowadays, you don't hear very many people talking about the pastors being stars. But the Lord Jesus, when he was talking about the seven stars of the churches of Asia, called the pastors stars, and he held them in his hand. They were in a special position in before the Lord. And Polycarp was one of those, and they, they called him and pulled him into the arena one time, and uh, during one of the special festivals, uh, and it was on the Sabbath day, they said, you will say, you'll worship Caesar, or you'll die. A follower of the Apostle Paul, and the mob led him into the arena before, the, before Caesar, and told him he had to make this declaration. And I wrote down what Polycarp had to say back, it's important when we understand what Jesus had to say about the church here. Polycarp said, Eighty and six years I have served Christ, and he has never done me wrong. How can I blaspheme the king who saved me? And so the Jews began to gather sticks 
to have him burned at the stake because that's what they wanted to have done to him. And he said, it's well. I fear not the fire that burns for a season and after a while is quenched. Why do you delay? Come to your will. And I'm told that Polycarp not only was not afraid of the fire, but he said, don't even tie me to the stake. I promise you I won't run. I'll stay right here and burn. I don't need, I'm not afraid of this fire. Let the fire burn. And uh, as the flames burned, he said, I thank thee, O God, that thou hast graciously thought me worthy of this day and of this hour, that I may receive a portion in the number of the martyrs in the cup of thy Christ. And they tried to burn all of his bones so they couldn't even collect his bones after the fire was over with. Polycarp felt it was a privilege to suffer for Christ and become a martyr in the fire, be burned for the name of Jesus Christ. And the position of Christians in that day was contemptible. Between the, they were stuck between the demands of Caesar and the slander of the Jews. It's like being between the devil and the deep blue sea. And no matter which way they turned, they were getting destroyed and they were having their possessions taken away from them and they were being beaten. And uh, uh, so the church gathered to hear this letter from Christ. And here's what it said. These things saith the first, here in, in, first, in uh, Revelation 2 again. These things saith the first and the last which is, was dead and is alive. I know thy works and tribulation and poverty. First thing he said, I know all about you. Now how many times do we say, God must have forsaken me. Where is God in the time of my need? Here they were going through it, and Jesus said, I know all about what's going on. Don't get upset. I haven't gone off on vacation. I haven't turned off my bell. I know exactly what's happening. I know right where you are. I know what you're going through right now. Now, I know thy works and thy tribulation and thy poverty. He says, I'm ever, I'm walking in your midst. I haven't even thought about forsaking you. I said I wouldn't forsake you, and I'm not going to... Remember when he was on the, on the sea and he saw the men, the disciples in the boat when there was a big storm and they were all fearful and he said, Be of good cheer as I, be not afraid. Now the disciples thought for sure he had forsaken them out there in the middle of the sea. He said, Don't be afraid, I'm right here. And he says to the church of Smyrna, I know exactly what you're going through. I know your poverty, I know your tribulation. Now, now let me tell you something. The thing we forget is the scriptures, Paul the apostle said, uh, that I may know him in the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his suffering. Now Smyrna was going through the fellowship of Christ's suffering because first of all, Christ was tempted in the same way. He was lonely. He was misunderstood. He was misquoted. He was being uh, bedeviled by the rest of the Jews that were trying to have him crucified. He said, as far as death is concerned, don't worry about that. I've gone before you. I've experienced it. You don't have to be afraid. I've gone through the valley of the shadow of death. There's life on the other side. He says, I wish was dead and now I'm alive. And I keep saying to Christians, I wish you wouldn't fear death so much because actually it's the only portal into where we're going. Bless God. Absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. And you know the trouble is we don't believe that many, many times. When I see so many that call themselves Christians going out to the graveyard talking to their loved ones in the grave, I, I say, you don't understand the word. They're not there. They're gone. They're with the Lord. Rejoice! That's just their shell. I don't ever go back to my parents' house where they used to live and talk to the house. All we see is that the shell that they live, that's what we put in the, bottom, in the ground, is this the shell. They're gone. He says, I was dead, but I'm alive. Now that word poverty is there. He says, I know thy tribulation poverty. Uh, it, it means abject beggarly poverty. 
pitiable want, according to the Greek, but not of spirit. (laughs) They lost their trade, they lost their position, they lost their their material uh, wealth, they lost their jobs, they they couldn't get a job or anything, but they didn't lose their spirit. And Jesus said, for your sake I became poor. A lot of times we're more than willing to get wealthy for Jesus, but many times we're not willing to get poor, be, be poor for Jesus. And he said, I know all about your poverty, and I haven't forsaken you at all. Jesus Christ himself, when he's here on earth, what did he? He borrowed a manger. He borrowed a cross. He borrowed a tomb. He borrowed an upper room. He didn't own anything. What did he say to the young man who said he wanted to follow him? He says, foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but I don't even have a place to lay my head. Do you want to follow me? A lot of times they say, well, they'll know them by their Cadillacs or they'll know them by their Lincolns. No, that isn't what the word says. Now, if God's blessed you with that, thank God for it and use it for his honor and glory. But if he sees fit and for anything else in our life, we've got to come to a place and say, Lord, it's okay, whatever you want. That word tribulation there, tribulation of poverty, it actually means affliction. It means to press. The same word that's used when they press the the, the, uh, juice out of the grapes or they would grind the grain in the grist mill and put pressure to smash something. The word says concerning Jesus, he was, what, man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. First, he says, I know about you. I want to tell you, I don't care what you're going through tonight. The Lord knows all about you. He knows right where you are. He has not forsaken you. But he said, let patience have its perfect work. Be patient. Wait on the Lord. His way is absolutely perfect. He doesn't make a mistake. Why me, Lord? Thank God that he's able to trust you, to trust him. The second thing is, is I know them. Notice what he said there in that same portion. He says, I know the blasphemy of them which say they are Jews and are not, but are of the synagogue of Satan. Another thing I thank God for, the Lord, the Lord knows the wheat from the tares. Churches can be filled with people pious as pilgrims and just as lost as anything. And people say, how can we put up with them being in, I mean, why are there so many hypocrites in the church? Don't worry about that. Jesus said when the harvest comes, he'll separate the wheat from the tares. But that doesn't mean that the wheat should try to be like the tares. He said, I know them which say they are Jews, but are not, but are of the synagogue of Satan. You see, these people hoped that they could make the price too high for them to follow Christ. But instead, they grew stronger in Christ and grew homesick for heaven. The church of Smyrna. They grew homesick for heaven. I don't know about you, but every once in a while I tell people, you know, I can't find a place that I can call home here on earth. Oh, it's nice to have a house to live in, but that's not home. This world is not my home. There is nothing in this world that really satisfies. We're just passing through. You know, more and more heaven becomes real to me. I real, I, I'm looking forward to the time when I'll be with the Lord. And it doesn't make any difference how I get there. All I know is in the meantime, I want to be busy serving the Lord, but before God, I want to tell you something. I don't fear death. I look forward to the time. I say, Lord, whenever my work is done, call me. I don't want to be here one day longer, and I don't want to be one day shorter, but in the meantime, I just want to be faithful. Christ said to the church there, he said, I know thy poverty, and now watch what he says, but thou art rich. I know your poverty, but you're rich. Now, I want to tell you something. He was not talking about rich in material blessings. Those had been taken away from them. 
They owned nothing to speak of materially whatsoever. It was almost impossible for them to even make a living. The people of Smyrna thought they were poor, and Christ said, no, you're rich. Now, that's a better eulogy to be given than all that he said to Ephesus. He gave it, Smyrna a better eulogy by saying that they think you're poor, but I know you're rich. I want to tell you something. There's such a thing as having a lot of material things and being in poverty. These people didn't have any barns and storehouses to store stuff in, but Jesus said, I know thy poverty, but thou art rich. Paul the Apostle said one time, sorrowful concerning the apostles of himself and others in the work, sorrowful yet always rejoicing, poor yet making many rich, having nothing and yet possessing all things, dying and behold we live. What were they rich in? What was Smyrna rich in? I just sat there and thought, what, Lord, you said they were rich. I thought, first of all, they're rich. They're rich in Christian character. The possessions they had, no one could steal from them. They'd already taken all their earthly possessions, but the possessions they now own, no one could take away from them. They had the, they're rich in the sense of their pardon through the blood of Christ. They were rich in the faith in God. What did Jesus say? Hath not God chosen the poor of this world, rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom, which he hath promised to them that love him? We have to understand what the Lord calls rich and what man calls rich. What do you say concerning the church of Laodicea? Oh, you have all these riches and you say, I have need of nothing. He said, you're naked and blind and poor and miserable and I want to spew you out of my mouth. You make me sick. I want to vomit. You have all these possessions. But the church at Smyrna says, I know your poverty, but you're rich. They're rich in the hope of the gospel. They're rich in their Christian experience. They're rich in answered prayer, God giving them grace every day. They're rich in their love for Christ and in God's economy. When I think of that, I wonder how rich we really are today. I'm talking about being rich. When I say God's economy, I'm talking about the wealth that never tarnishes and never decays and never fades. What are we really willing to lose today for Christ's sake? What are we willing to give into the kingdom of God for Christ's sake? Jesus said if we're not willing to give up everything, we can't even be his disciple. And he said to the church of Smyrna here, you're rich. I'll tell you, the persecution they went through made it a pure church, too. You notice that there's no discipline needed here as there was in Ephesus. He didn't say, we're going to have discipline you now, and you're going to have to repent and so forth. All the boys, men were separated from the boys already. They'd already gone through the school of hard knocks. And it was not popular to be a Christian, so they weren't there because of the notoriety and the popularity of being a Christian. There were no carnal church members there. They'd already been cleaned out. You know, sometimes I think, dear God, if that's what it takes, do it. In the United States, if that's what it's going to take to clean the church out, do it. Whatever it takes. There are no cold hearts. There are no false prophets, by the way. I don't think a false prophet would have lasted five minutes in the church of Smyrna. No social prestige, no business advancement, no one saying, I'll join the church, but... They get up each day and say, cheer up, things are going to get worse. And they cheered up and sure enough, they got worse. And they trusted the Lord every single day. And there was no way out. No way out. 
I mean, they couldn't escape it. What did Jesus say? Fear none of those things which thou, what? What? Shalt suffer. Fear none of those things which thou shalt suffer. He didn't say, just hang on there and I'll get you out of it. He said, don't fear those things that you're going to suffer. How many of us go through life fearful of the things we may have to suffer? He said, fear none of those things which thou shalt suffer. You're going to suffer, so get ready for it. If you haven't suffered enough yet, let me tell you, there's suffering coming. Behold, the devil shall cast some of you into prison that ye may be tried, and ye shall have tribulation ten days. He didn't say, hang in there and you're going to get your jobs back and you're going to get your properties back and you're going to... Uh... No, he says, you're going to go to prison. Cheer up. You think things are bad now. Wait till you get thrown into prison. See, Satan was trying them to see if they would fall. God was trying them to see if they would stand victorious, allowing them to be tried. Don't tell me that God doesn't allow us to go through trials and testings and tribulations. He does. And he will in the days ahead. Behold, the devil shall cast you into prison. And by the way, back in that day, that was a horrifying experience. A person that went to prison back there was treated worse than a, a, a mongrel dog. They were turned over to the mercy of the jailers there in that day. And they were not nice air-conditioned places with air with uh, a meal served at your cell and air conditioning and television and newspapers and magazines and libraries and legal libraries and attorneys visiting you and all your medical expenses paid. It wasn't like that in that day. It was a dark, damp jail where you were chained to the floor and if somebody was lucky, if you're lucky enough for somebody to come and bring you some food, you might survive. But in most cases, you died there with disease in a few months. The Romans did it to the church of Smyrna. And the Jews encouraged them to do it, but Satan was behind it all. The Lord didn't say, I'm going to turn things around. He said, you shall have tribulation ten days. I don't know if that was literal or if it was just meant for a short period of time. There's no indication of what it meant. But he said, be thou faithful unto, not until, unto death. Be thou faithful unto death, and I will give thee a crown of life. If you're going to get a crown of life, you've got to be faithful and believe that he's faithful. If we're going to get a crown of life, we're going to have to trust God in our worst circumstances and say, he never fails. His way is perfect. Whether by life or by death, I'm going to glorify the Lord Jesus Christ. I want that crown of life. I want the crown of life above everything else. And he said, if you want the crown of life, get ready to die. It means martyrdom. You heard of the dictator down in Peron, down in South America. I was told one time he stepped out on the balcony and they notified the people that someone, that he had to have a special organ in his body, it would take somebody else's life. And everybody started chanting, my life for Peron, my life for Peron, my life for Peron. The whole crowd said, here, my life for Peron. I'll be glad to give my life for Peron. He said, I'm going to drop a feather off the balcony here, and as it floats down, whoever it lands on, they'll be the one that will give their life for Peron. And the weather feather started floating down, and the people were saying, my life for Peron, my life for Peron, my life for Peron.
He says it's coming. The tri tribulation is coming. Don't shrink back. I didn't. Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass me, but nevertheless, not my will, but thine be done. 